We've been in a, a talk about the Trinity of God. The Trinity, we've talked about God, the Holy Spirit, talked about Jesus, the Son, talked about the Father, and we had different speakers uh, talking about different uh, aspects of God, or the Godhead, or the Trinity, or triune God, and today I'm going to talk about the general God. We've talked about the persons of God, but I want to tackle this, this subject of, um, of God. And uh, so sit tight, grab your phones out, grab your uh, notebooks, grab some notes. We're gonna, this is going to be more of like a teaching versus like a, a talk, so just prepare yourself. Um, most of the stuff that I'm going to talk about, it doesn't really come from me. There are people who are just slightly smarter than I. And so I have uh, borrowed a lot because the study of God and what it means is just, there's a lot of dynamics to it. Um, and sometimes we think we know God. And I'll challenge you this. If you want to know how little you know about the Trinity God, the triune God, the next time you pray, pray to the Father. And then pray to the Son. And then pray to the Holy Spirit. Without regurgitating and, re and repetition. We like to generalize the things that we don't spend time in. It makes it easier for us. And this is one of those things that we don't spend too much time with because splitting them up and putting them together and who's what's and, and it's, it, it could become really, really messy. But to understand the Trinity or the triune God or the Godhead, there's a few things that I want to, um, that we need to settle. The first is that the word Trinity is not found in scripture. And, uh, but the scripture represents the concept of the Trinity everywhere. It's in there. Just the word by itself is not found in it. So don't be distracted if you're like, well, the word's not in there. Yeah, omnipresence is also not in there, but it describes an attribute of God. Omniscience is also not in there. It describes an attribute of God. But we do believe that he's omnipresent. It means he's everywhere. We do believe that he's, he knows all things. So we have words to try to describe or, or, or summarize in a way that we can un try to understand. So, um, so although the word Trinity is not in there, the Bible is laced with, with this concept. Um, the second thing is that the Trinity is a holy mystery. Okay, it's, it, there is a ton of mystery around the concept of Trinity. So it is difficult to understand and to comprehend. So faith is required. This is going to be where you have to believe certain aspects without fully comprehending or understanding this idea. Scripture and the Holy Spirit does reveal certain aspects of the Trinity for us to understand, but it's limited. The Trinity does not go against reason because it goes beyond reason. It goes beyond reason. So for God to be beyond the comprehension of his creation is what makes God God and us not. If we were able to grasp him, then he wouldn't be much of God because we would be able to contain him. It is difficult to understand God being eternal and not created, right? We only know and operate in the cause and effect. So we always are asking the question, well, what happened before God? 
Who made God? Where did the God come from? It's hard for us to understand this idea of an, on, an uncaused cause. That God was. That's it. He just is. There is no beginning. There is no end. There is no middle. He just is. And that's super hard for us to understand because we have a beginning, we have a middle, and we have an end. So I want to dive into this concept of this trinity and, and maybe help to under, for us to understand and try to wrestle with it to some extent. Okay? You guys ready? You guys ready? Yeah. All right. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. And if someone can grab me some water, that'd be amazing. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. This is in the New Living Translation. This is a story of... Um, of one of the teachers of the religious law was asking Jesus a question. And in verse 28, it says that he, uh, one of the teachers of the law was uh, standing there listening to the debate and he realized Jesus had answered well. So he answered, uh, oh, he asked this question of Jesus. He said, okay, Jesus, like, he's like, you're smart, granted. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And verse 29, Jesus replied, the most important is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And I love how Jesus, even in answering the question, goes beyond what is asked. Because it's part of Jesus' attribute is to go beyond, is to give more. We want to find an end to him and he has no end. And so, um, I, I not, but I love this because, because there is so much more depth to this, to this, to this um, answer. Verse 32, the, the teacher of religious law replied, well said, well said teacher. Verse 32, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. Verse 33, and I love this. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and all of uh, my strength to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Verse 34, catch this. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So it seems like the guy, the teacher, asked Jesus something that he, the teacher already knew and Jesus already knew. But then Jesus says, wow, you are not far. But if you back up, as I was like pondering this, I was like, wow, like, like okay, so obviously this guy knows the law. So why would Jesus be impressed? After all, he's the teacher of the law. So what's so impressive when he says, oh, yeah, you're not too far from the kingdom of God. But I want you to catch something, and this is where this transitions, and I think why Jesus paid attention. And in the NLT, it says it, it, says it this way. In verse 33, this teacher says, and I know it is important to love him with all of my heart, with all of my strength, to love my neighbor, 
as myself. This teacher answers Jesus by personalizing the command. He's not just generally citing the command. He's saying to love my neighbor in my strength. And Jesus is like, wow, you're not far. This teacher personalizing it. I think it's important to understand personalization of, of, of this thing. Um, if I'm not married, I can do a great talk on marriage. But if I get married, my talk on marriage is going to be very different. That is that personalization of marriage. Same thing with kids. You talk about having kids, raising kids until you turn blue. Then you have them. Then your mouth goes, boop. And God help, God help. It's the stepping into the experience of raising squirts that you love dearly. Um, but Jesus was quoting the um, Shema prayer, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And Shema basically means hear, to hear. So I want to put up image one. This is the most important prayer in, Judea, in Judaism and is spoken daily in the Jewish tradition. And this basically quotes um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, and verse 4 and on. And it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Take to heart these instructions with, uh, with which I charge you this day. Impress them upon your children. Recite them when you stay at home and when you are away. When you lie down and when you get up, bind them as a sign on your hand and let them serve as a symbol on your forehead. Inscribe them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is the foundation for a people who worshiped one God in a time where all others worshiped hundreds and even millions of gods. Theology calls this concept uh, monotheism. There are three historical creeds of the church that encompass this idea of Trinity. And we're not going to read them all, we're just going to read the first one. Image number two is the Apostles' Creed. And, um, and basically, the creeds are widely accepted among Christians as biblically faithful statements of Christian orthodoxy or the right teaching. And so they had to clarify what is believed because there were false teachings began to circulate. And so in AD 120, uh, this, this creed came out, the Apostles' Creed. And this is what it says. You've probably heard it. It's probably familiar. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only uh, son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And then I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And Catholic means universal, not the Roman Catholic. It just means universal church. The communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And so image number uh, three, the creed, uh, the creed of Nicaea. 
We're not going to read it, but it basically just reaffirms and tweaks the original uh, creed. And then we have the uh, Chalcedian uh, creed, which is kind of the same thing. It just continually tries to put everyone in line of what we believe about God. And the big idea, as I hope you've already heard, is this. God is one. God is one. So we call this Trinity, Triune, or Godhead. So as we begin to unpack this, what God is not is this. God is not one person with three different roles or modes of revelation. That's called modalism. God does not change forms. God doesn't go from son to father, from father to spirit as you need him. He's not like Superman who's also Clark Kent. Um, he's not like me who's a father, a pastor, and a son, or a husband, a son, and a father. That's called modalism, and so that's not what, when we talk about the Trinity or triune God, that's not what we're talking about. Second is that we're, not also, we're also not talking about, God, about three gods. That, yes, we say Jesus is God. The Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but what we're not saying is that there are three gods and we're just for simplicity call it God. Okay, that's called polytheism or tritheism. And poly just basically means many. Um, you may have seen this image and so I just want to kind of like point up, get it up here and, and explain it. Image number um, five. Image number five. Is this good? You guys getting anything? All right. That's good. That's good. We're in church and we're getting stuff. All right. So as you see, the way that the Trinity expressed through this image to help us kind of see what we're talking about is it basically says this, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet there's still only one God. Right? The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. They are individual or persons but they are God as one. And I'm not going to go too much into the detail of trying to um, explain um, this thing. But, but, this is, but we believe that God is one, even though there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe, we're we're uh, monotheism. We believe in monotheism. That means that God is, God is one. God is essentially a trinity of three divine persons in one divine person personal being. Trinity is one in essence, power, and glory. Um, there is a difference, and, and uh, Plato talks about this. He, Plato made a distinction between a being and, and becoming. And they attribute becoming to human beings and being to God being. And the difference is this, becoming is existence, which is the state of becoming, always changing. So as human beings, we are always changing. So we are becoming. No second is the same second, because there's always added information. There's always a change. Every second, you're growing older, and you will die. <laughs> 
that did not go well. Okay, that's all right, though. That's still the truth, whether you like it or not. We're, we're, we don't remain the same. We're always changing. It's the idea of becoming. But being is a subsistence, which means something that does not show evidence of change. So the substance is God. The persons are Father, Son, and Spirit. God is a being. God is not and cannot become anything other than what and who he is. He's not becoming into anything. That means that God does not have potential. He just is and he doesn't change. That also means that you are not God. It also means that God is not three but one. It also means that Man did not create God in their image, but God created man in his image. Um, someone said it this way. The Trinity is like three who's, Father, Son, Spirit, and one what, which is God. God, which is the what, and three who's, Father, Son, and Spirit. C.S. Lewis held that the Trinity is something experienced in the life of the Christian. Oh, and C.S. Lewis has amazing things. Oh, so let me just quote. An ordinary simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's, he's trying to get into, in touch with God. But if he is a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God. That Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening? God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in the ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. That's rich. The Bible distinguishes the persons. And I'm not going to go... I'm not going to go into all the scripture, but there's a ton of them. But what we find in scripture is that God the Father says, I. The Son also says, I. The Spirit can say, I. The Father also says, you, to the Son. And the Son also says, you, to the Father. The Father and the Son use the words like he and him in referencing to the Spirit. Furthermore, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit testifies to the Son. These statements indicate the reality of three different persons. Paul prayed in Corinthians that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. He may have been echoing God's blessing in Numbers, but Paul also wrote, told the, the Ephesians is this, that I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Reminding them that it is through Christ that all of us are able to come into one spirit into the presence of the Father. This is so rich. This is so, so beautiful. Although there are three divine persons, these three are in some sense jointly God. Jesus commanded the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
He didn't say baptize them in the names of God, the names of the Father, the names of the, not the names, it's not, it's, it's the name of, the name singular, and we'll get into this in a second, but, but then as he says the name, it's like, you know, um, the Father, Son, Spirit, baptize them in the name. It's, it's beautiful, it's, 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 it's crazy. And so Jesus is teaching them that there's three divine persons who are one God. In ancient times, a name wasn't just an identifying label, but was meant to represent someone's inner character. So Bob the Lazy was Bob the Lazy because Bob was lazy. And if you're Bob, you may not be lazy, so I'm not saying that. Um, Jesus' disciples did not abandon monotheism either in their view of God. Uh, oh man, okay. Let me get into this. This prayer that we, that we read, that the Jewish people prayed, this idea of uh, a monotheism, of being, there being one God, is not new to their prayer. And the origin is not Deuteronomy 6. Um, it's actually in Genesis chapter 1. In the first three verses. And this is so, just follow along if you can. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So Genesis opens up with this, God creating by the act of speech, which can be interpreted as the divine word or logos. We read in John that the word was made flesh. And then we read that the spirit hovered over the waters. Just in the first three verses, there is this distinction and a complexity to God being the one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless. Empty darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered. And then God said, let there be light. Isn't it like, it's insane. Now, it even gets more insane because the word for God is used in this passage as a plural noun. The word for God is Elohim. So El means one, Eloha means two, Elohim means three. And cannot be explained as a plural of majesty though. So God as one is talking about unity as well. According to W.A. Prattney, the Old Testament word for absolute mathematical or numerical unity and or singularity is yoghed or yachet, however is the proper word to say it, which is never used to describe the unity of God. But on the other hand, Iket describes a compound or collective unity. So this is referring to the unity of God is referring to like in marriage, when, what does it say, two become one, two persons, one marriage, right? Um, we read in Ezekiel, a crowd can gather as one. Um, in First Chronicles, we read that 
they were of one mind and heart. All the rest of Israel were of one heart to make David king. They were united. This is, this is the compound plural always used of God when he's called one Lord. And we can go in, Jesus is God, represented in John chapter 5. I won't read that. Colossians, everything was made by Jesus. It's referencing Jesus being God, the Father being God, the Holy Spirit being God. I mean, you just go in Genesis and Acts. Um, So now it's kind of interesting because as you begin to expand how we see and how we hear God, then there's a statement in Genesis that says that we are made in God's image. So there has to be a representation of the Trinity within mankind. And it's amazing because um, even with man, like there's so many aspects of Trinity. And this is why people get really with their analogies, you know, um, the Trinity of man. There's so many different Trinity, you know, analogies that fall apart um, that you have to really kind of hold really, really loosely to them. But but then we, we represent God. We are made in God's image. This statement does not mean that God creates human to, resem- to resemble him physically because God is spirit. Right? God is spirit. Rather, this seems to support the idea that God endowed humans with a certain kind of awareness, one which animals and birds and fish were not given. Humans possess the capacity for reason, morality, language, personality, purpose, spirituality, experiences, and understanding, loves, truth, and beauty. These are unique to humanity. So, we are, so these represent God because God is a person, personalities, persons. He can be grieved. He can talk back. He can guide. He can di- dissect. He can discern. He is compassion. So in this sense, humans would stand as God's image, God's representatives on earth as we were to rule, or we are to rule and manage all of God's creation. So God placed mankind on earth to represent him. So we're made in his image to represent him. Oh, this gets better. This gets better. Oh, man, there's so much Trinity from every... I'm skipping, guys. I'm, I'm skipping, I'm skipping. Um... So the fact is that the Trinity in Scripture is found everywhere. I promise you, it's found everywhere. But here's the, the, the thing that we kind of cannot grasp. Image number six. No matter how much you read it and agree with it, um, we still don't understand. You can put up image six. One plus one plus one equal, equals three. There's no way around it. Some, maybe you can spiritualize it and, and say, well, in God's economy, one plus one plus one is one. And so it's, it's hard for us to grasp this idea of three persons and one God, one being. But if I were to offer you another image, next image. Huh. Huh. What do you know? We can't have three and still equal one. Okay, one more. 
I play music. And I like the musical analogy proposed by theologian Jeremy Begbie. A musical chord is essentially composed of three different notes. To be a chord, all three notes must be present, namely the first, the third, and the fifth notes of a given musical scale. For example, the chord of C major is composed of the notes C, the root of the chord, E, the third from the root, and G, the fifth from the root. Each individual note is a sound, and all three notes played together are likewise a sound. Hence, a chord is essentially three sounds in one sound, or one sound essentially composed of three different sounds, each of which has an individual identity as well as a corporate identity. So let me demonstrate. That's C. This is the root. It's a sound by itself. It's full, it's there. It's not a chord. This is a different sound and yet still one sound and two notes. And the third, the G, fills the whole. This is called a chord. And with this, you can do amazing things. Next time someone says, let's worship God, we have to think more deeply about who we're worshiping. As the band comes up, it's one thing to just talk about God, have the theology of God, but there's a purpose behind the Trinity of God. We know that God is love. We may not know that love is not God. Those are not the same. In addition to God is love, God also loves. And when he loves... Nothing is taken from him. When he loves you, he does not become less God, even though God is love. The concept of love could only make sense whenever there is a God who is Trinity. The 
the root of love cannot be one loving themselves. Self-love. That's not the purest of love. Also, what's not the purest of love is one loving someone else, which is two now. The base and the purity of love is not love, one loving themselves and or lo one loving someone else. The purity of love is for one to be able to love themselves, love another, and love with another. If God was not Trinity, God would not be love. Because then God would need you and me in order for him to love. And we know that God doesn't need anybody. He loved before he created you. He does not need us for him to love. He is a society, a community full of love without us. So when we talk about God extending an invitation, he is inviting us to his family of love. He's saying, I want you to experience what I experience as God. So we will create you in our image. David doesn't even use, it says, let us make man, let us make man in our image so that we, humanity can represent this community. And so that love can actually be seen. This is why most of the New Testament letters are written to churches. It's to communities. The greatest lie you can, you can grab a hold of is that you got this on your own. God, in his essence, is a community, but you got this on your own. Don't you just love that it all starts and ends with love but it's so foundational it's not just an emotion this is why God does not give us permission to redefine love anything that we know about love and perfection and purity and standards is because he exists so the invitation that we always have is to invite you into the family of God so that you can experience love for yourself. So I want everyone to just close their eyes, bow their heads, and I just want to offer this invitation to you. We twofold invitation. One, if you've never stepped into a relationship with God, this is your moment. Whether you're here or whether you're watching, and it's simply this. It's a prayer that you can repeat after me, but the prayer is not the thing that saves you. It is you giving your heart and your life and your will and your past and your future to God. It's saying, God, I want to step into your family. And you step into God's family through Jesus, who died and shed his blood to make it possible. 
This is why Jesus is the only way, because he's God. So just surrender your life wherever you are. You can simply pray, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I need you. Save me. I invite Jesus to take over my life. I give you my life. Make me yours. The Bible says that if you call on the name of the Lord, he shall save you. And if you've called on the name of the Lord, please let us know so we can help you with next steps. Second group of people is those of us who have diminished God to our level. That we have diminished worship to our preferences. That we only show up for church when we feel like it. We only pray when we need something. We read the Bible so we can get points. Some of us just need to say, God, forgive me for not thinking more deeply about who you are. Because our worship comes out of revelation of who he is to us. He will be worshiped whether you worship him or not. Now you have a choice, you have an option, but when he comes the second time for his people, you'll be forced to worship because every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And so, so maybe some of us now are, have looked at God as just, oh, I worship God. I think we as Christian people in our culture have to take God more seriously. We have to take worship more seriously. We have to take our devotion more seriously. So maybe some of you here just need to just say, God, forgive me. Forgive me. That's all it takes. Be reconnected with your creator. Let him love you. 